0: Have you ever seen a shooting star? Yeah! I mean, haven't I mean, you? Yeah. I don't think so. What?! Yeah. You go to all these, like, remote places in uh, well, the middle of nowhere. I think for me, though, it's, um, I... Well, I guess this is a bad excuse at night. The, the herpetologist in me, like, the critter person in me, always looks down. So I'm actually real bad at looking up. I don't appreciate things above me. I only appreciate things below me. So, we are back for a bonus episode. Yep. And in this uh, reason why we're talking about shooting stars, we chatted with Nina Lanza about uh, her work finding meteorites. And this is in addition to our most recent episode with her and Chris Yeager from the Los Alamos Laboratory.
1: I was uh, lucky enough to be um, a team member in, for the uh, Antarctic Search for Meteorites uh, project. That's um, Ansmet. And so this is uh, an NSF and NASA-sponsored project to go out to Antarctica and recover meteoritic material. Um, this project is amazing. It's been going on for 40 years now. So it's actually older than I am. Um, and they have recovered, as a team, over 60% of the known meteoritic material on Earth. So it is incredibly bountiful. And what's incredible about this project is that you, know, you can collect materials from all over the solar system without leaving home. And so you mentioned Martian meteorites. You know, the first Martian meteorite to be identified as Martian was collected by ANSMET. And that's true for the first lunar meteorite as well. Um, So we knew that, we knew what lunar rocks looked like from the Apollo missions. Um, So the, I think it was the 1982 ANSMET team was zipping around in Antarctica and they found this rock that looked just like a lunar rock. And there was no mistaking it because we had samples of lunar rock. No one could say that this was this was just something from Earth that looks weird. It definitely was lunar. And so then the question was, well, how did it get here? Previously, dynamicists thought, no, it's not possible to have a rock fall from one planet onto another. Just not possible. Well, they had to go back to the drawing board to figure out how that was possible because here is a moon rock <laughs> right here on Earth. Mm-hmm. And so this launched a whole reexamination of meteorites in collections all over the world to say, well, If there's a lunar rock here, what else could be here? And it turns out that there are actually Martian meteorites here as well. Uh, I don't know what the count is exactly. It's on the order of 150 or so. Many of those have been collected in Antarctica. Um, And those are the only samples of Mars that we have in our hands, right? It's great to do robotic remote sensing missions, but there's nothing like having a rock in your hand that you can do analyses on in the laboratory and do different types of analyses, depending on what you find in your first assessment. You know, so, so this is a really big deal, to be able to have, you know, access to other planets without leaving home.
2: How do you find meteorites in Antarctica? How do you do that?
1: Yeah, well, um, it doesn't take any special uh, training or talent. You look for rocks. Because it turns out that Antarctica is a big white sheet of ice. Um, and so there are almost no Antarctic rocks when you're not close to you know a mountain range. You have you know maybe two miles of ice, right? Any rock that's on the surface, that came from space. Um, but Antarctica also has this really cool um, conveyor belt effect because it's all entirely glaciated. So you can imagine it this way. So snow is falling in the center of the continent. Um, and as more snow falls on top of that it gets compressed until eventually it turns into ice and that ice starts to flow under its own weight. So the center of Antarctica is pretty high in elevation and so all the ice is flowing in all directions outward toward the sea. So any rock that falls into that snow will eventually get buried in ice and then carried by this glacier toward the sea. Now if nothing stops it, it's just gonna fall into the ocean and we lose that meteorite. But if we're lucky, the ice will run into something like the Trans-Antarctic Mountains and it will slow down or even stop. And then the very strong gravity-driven winds in Antarctica will be able to scour that ice and then uncover everything that's ever been buried. So even though meteorites are not falling on Antarctica at a greater rate, right, you start seeing more meteorites being concentrated because you have all of the meteorites that have fallen in, you know, thousands of years will suddenly be exposed to the surface in the same place. So you can actually just drive around on your skidoo and look for meteorites. And there's actually quite a few out there. Um, certainly there are also some Antarctic rocks that get embedded into the ice as well. And we call those meteor wrongs because you <laughs> get really excited to find a rock and then you're like, this is not a meteorite. But, but in fact, most of the material you see out there is meteoritic. Um, So we typically will only look in places where blue ice is exposed. Blue ice is the most compressed ice. So it's not, it hasn't been, um, there's not a lot of air in it. It hasn't been exposed to melt. Um, And so you can see blue ice from satellite images. So the ANSMET PIs will plan the field season beforehand by looking at the most recent satellite data to say, okay, here is exposed blue ice. We're going to look here. And one of the other things they try to do too is actually search these areas more than once to see what the recharge rate is, right? So how quickly are meteorites being exposed? So the area where I went, one of the areas that I went in the Miller range, we have actually searched something like seven times before. Yet we still found more meteorites there.
2: So you just have to go out, is this very remote from other parts of Antarctica? You have to camp out there? It's pretty
1: remote, Yeah. (laughs) yeah. So I think I was probably, Halfway between McMurdo Station, which is on the coast, and Pole Station, which is at the South Pole, so that is probably the definition of the middle of nowhere. Um, it is we were in the middle, uh, the Miller Range, which is part of the Transantarctic Mountains. Um, it's actually really close to the route where both Amundsen and Scott uh, made their first trips to the South Pole. Um, and that territory has not changed one bit in that time. It looks exactly the same. I'm pretty certain. Uh, so we were camping in Scott tents, so the same tents that Scott used—these double-walled canvas tents—just um, on the ice, and we we lived there for five weeks.
2: Wow, that's quite a bit of time. Yeah, it's <laughs> way out there. <laughs> Did you have to get airdrops or something for.
1: We do. So um, we are we are brought there by twin otters. Um, we have to do multiple drops because Twin Otters are, are not that big and we have to take um, eight skidoos. Every person gets their own skidoo, so you got to put those all in a plane. Um, so we, we do several drops um, and so the team goes out in sort of uh, waves. The first four goes out sets up the preliminary tent uh, camp and then the rest of the team comes with the rest of the gear, um, but sometimes there is quite a bit of weather that prevents the whole team from being there that actually happened in my season the four of us were dropped um you know we got our tent set up and we demonstrated that our our stove work and the pilots were like we're out and then they didn't come back for five days (laughs) because there was a huge katabatic windstorm so that's the gravity driven winds the sky above was totally blue and clear but the winds were so fast that it was just whiteout conditions on the ground Uh, And so I I had a little pocket anemometer so I could measure the winds at about 62 miles an hour. um, Which is actually really hard to walk in, it turns out, you know, just trying to get outside, you know. um, And that's not very high wind for Antarctica. It can actually be a lot worse.
2: There's not too many places to hide from that either, I imagine.
1: You just hide in your tent and hope (laughs) it doesn't blow away. (laughs)
2: must be loud too.
1: It's incredibly loud. It's so loud. It sounds like, I mean, your brain is trying to make sense of what this sound is. It really sounds like a freight train or an airplane landing right next to you. It sounds crazy. It's so, so loud. Um, And even just when it's less loud, it makes weird sounds blowing over all the ice. It just, it doesn't sound like wind that you, you know, outside of Antarctica, you would never think of this as a wind sound.
2: Now, so for the meteorites, uh, do you find them by eyesight?
1: Yeah. So you just, uh, you look for the rocks, first of all. And then, you know, meteorites often have particular characteristics that can help you identify them as extraterrestrial. Um, The biggest one is a fusion crust. So that's when, you know, a rock falls through the atmosphere, the very surface will get very heated and turn into something very glassy and dark often. So these are these dark, shiny, they kind of look in some ways like rock varnish, but a little bit more rainbow texture because they're actually amorphous. So it's sort of a glassy fusion crust. So that's the first, first thing that you look for. Then you can also check to see, is this a magnetic rock? Most meteorites are magnetic if they are um, what are called chondritic. So chondritic meteorites. Uh, have these little blebs of material in it? These little circular blebs, and these are chondrites are um, the type of meteorites that have never been incorporated into a planetary body. Um, that's the most common kind. Um, you know, they might be ordinary chondrites, but they're not boring. They're still very interesting. That's about eighty-five percent of the material um, that's going to fall on the Earth is uh, a chondritic m- meteorite, um, and so that those are very interesting to learn. You know, what are the building blocks of of planets and what what are the raw materials but we get particularly excited when we have these achondritics. So without chondrites, those typically are m- meteorites that have been that have come from a planetary body that is differentiated. So that means it's massive enough to have a core, like a metallic or heavier core and then this more silica-rich mantle. So something like the Earth, the Earth is a big enough planet, but you know, also asteroids like Ceres, those are differentiated. Um, so we can tell that because they look a lot more like terrestrial rocks. You'll see there's a fusion crust, right, because they've come through the atmosphere, but they won't have those chondrules. They'll just look like a regular old rock that you might step over if it weren't for that for that fusion crust. Um, and so that's, that's where we start finding the lunar meteorites, the Martian meteorites, the ones from Vesta. You know, they're actually differentiated meteorites, and we don't know where they came from. We have no idea. So there's some planet out there... That has lost a piece of rock and we don't know which one it is um, but that tells us something about you know the variety of differentiated planets and hopefully eventually we can make an identification.
2: How can you tell the Martian meteorites from, from the others?
1: By sight it's very challenging to say this one is Martian versus lunar or from Vesta. you know they, they could look very similar. Um, It's really in the chemistry and in the details and the mineralogy that tell you where these are from. Um, The biggest indicator is the oxygen isotope ratio. It turns out that depending on where uh, a planetary body formed, it will have a unique signature based on its distance from the sun. And so um, actually Earth and the moon have the same oxygen isotope ratio, and that's actually because we formed from the same material. Um, So there's actually no difference there. Uh, but Mars is further out, and so it actually has a different oxygen isotope ratio thats a that's a big one. Uh, another is that you know people have managed to take atmosphere out of these uh, little voids in the rock and analyzed it, and it matches the Martian atmosphere exactly and that's another a uh, good example of you know just a, a piece of evidence that says this is definitely Martian versus from somewhere else.
2: I know Martian meteorites have been source of controversy too, when you're looking for a life on Mars. Remember there was the one, famous yes. one that had the little ALH squiggly- Yeah, zero zero. 0 one Yeah, that, was, that went on for a long, I haven't heard a lot about that one recently. Uh, <laughs> whatever happened with that?
1: Well, that meteorite still exists. <laughs> it's in the curation collection at Johnson Space Center with the other Antarctic meteorites. So that one is ALH, Allen Hills is where it was found. So that was found by Ansmet. It's not a very big meteorite, it's actually pretty small. But what was so exciting about it is that there were these little blebs of carbonate materials that some interpreted as potential cellular cellular forms, right? So they they look like little cells, and they were made out of carbonate. Um, and so, I mean, that was really exciting because I mean that is the the first you know the first order that is evidence of life but of course a big claim requires big proof and most of the community agreed that you know this is not big enough it's not it's too ambiguous to say this is definitely from life it's it tells us that we should keep looking and it tells us we should keep looking for things that are very specific um, but you know the universe is a really big place and a lot of things can happen through chemistry alone you know amino acids are just floating in space they're not made by life as far as we know right so a lot of weird things can happen with chemistry and we think that's exactly what happened with this meteorite this Martian meteorite is that it, there's something very interesting in there I mean I think what's most exciting about it is that it shows that I mean there's carbon on Mars. There's some right there, right? You can see it. They were not from Earth. It was not secondary alteration, right? So native carbonates to Mars. And so that tells us already that this is a very habitable environment. Carbonates disappear very quickly under acidic conditions. So this means this, these fluids must have been pretty, neutral to um, basic pH, you know, it tells us there had to have been liquid water. I mean, so it's actually not a bummer in the sense that, you know, okay, we didn't find the aliens, but it's telling us a lot about, you know, what, how habitable Mars really is. It's just another piece of evidence.